There are powers and privileges granted to the three branches of government. You can find them in Articles 1 through 3 in the Constitution. And so today, we're going to break that down for you in Part 4 of Michael Bednarik's teachings in Good to Be King, the Foundation of Our Constitutional Freedom. So sit back, grab yourself a cup of coffee or whatever it is that you're into. You're listening to America Emboldened with Greg Bolden here on the America Out Loud Network. America Emboldened. Greg, I feel emboldened. You don't know the founding fathers. You don't know what they did. You don't know what they sacrificed. We have lost touch with the principles in the Constitution. Nobody's read the Declaration of Independence. You are voting for socialism, and you got what you voted for. Welcome, bold Americans, to part four of Good to be King, the Foundation of Constitutional Freedom, with the voice from the intro of my show, the late Michael Bednark, the godfather of the Constitution himself. Now, we've been covering a lot of topics since Monday. Since part one, where we talked about the difference between what is a right, what is a privilege, we talked about why people are just completely ignorant and live in their ignorance towards all this, and then we moved over into part two, talking about our individual rights, our sovereign state, as well as the form of government that we have. In part three, yesterday's episode, we talked about the Communist Manifesto and how we already are modeling our country over the last 100 years after the Communist Manifesto. We also talked about why we were founded the way that we were with Alexander Hamilton, as well as uh, Patrick Henry and all the other individuals who helped make us what we're supposed to be. Now we're to the part where we're ready to get started in talking about the way that our government works. We talked yesterday about it being a trust and that the people that serve us have a fiduciary responsibility in order to serve us and protect our rights. Now with that fiduciary responsibility, that government authority, they do get a little bit of power and privileges granted to them. So today we're going to talk a little bit more about that. And that is best defined by the separations of powers through checks and balances through the three branches of government. Michael Benark, take it away. Now, one of the things that the founding fathers did was to establish a system of checks and balances. How many people remember that? Good. Now, what are the system of checks and balances? Lock and key? Well, kind of, sort of. There are three branches of government. You had the legislative branch that makes the law, the executive branch that enforces the law, and the judicial branch that adjudicates breaches of the law. But it's all law. And we want to make sure that each group doesn't have too much power. So we separate them. Ironically, the first three articles of the Constitution are legislative, executive, and judicial. You want to know anything about Congress? Go to Article 1. You want to know anything about the President and Vice President? Go to Article 2. 
Supreme Court, that's Article 3. Let's talk about Article 1, which is legislative. All right, so if we look at Article 1.1.1, it states that all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and a House of Representatives. So that is our Congress and our Senate. Now, we understand that maybe now because we go to the ballot box and we we vote for individuals to represent us, but we may not understand how we got there. It wasn't so easy back when they were trying to write this document. See, you had small states like Massachusetts or you had Delaware and you had large states such as New York or Virginia. And so the small states like Delaware, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, they hated the idea that a single large state could easily outnumber the votes from a smaller one. Because at the time they were saying, well, you should have voting based upon representation. So they would want to know how many people live in the state and therefore they will give you the amount of representatives according to that number. But if you're doing it based upon population, then to represent everybody equally, then they don't have the rights of other states represented equally because they do not have the populations. So they fought over this issue. And when I say they fought over this issue, Benjamin Franklin, he actually, in his writings, he talks about how he had to stop the meetings between delegates to calm down their nerves at the local taverns and pubs because things got so heated during their arguments. Eventually, they come to a great compromise and they say, okay, instead of just having one set of representatives, we're going to have a Congress and a Senate and every state will get two senators from each state. But the representatives in the House should be apportioned among several states uh, according to their respective numbers. Now, this is what legalizes our ability to have a census. Now, we have a bastardized census now where they ask you additional questions, but they have a right to ask you how many people live in your home. Why? Because you need representatives in Congress in order to make sure that the proper number is meeting your needs. They do not have the right to ask you questions about what color is your skin? Uh, where, where do you go to the church? Are you an atheist? How much money are you making now? What's your family income? What would they make now? Hey, where, where do you guys like to go on vacation? Oh, Disney, I like that too. No, nope, nope, nope. All the Constitution gives them the rights to ask you is simply how many people live in your home. And that's very important because of Article 1. Article 1 starts off the legislative branch. And according to those numbers, which was at the time also the numbers of free persons, they were able to give um, representation. Now, there is a lot of people that they get critical of the Constitution or when people like myself do shows like this, like, yeah, 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 Greg, but uh, the Constitution, you know, it didn't state that slavery was wrong. Therefore, uh, the Constitution was a flawed document. Yeah, I didn't say that the Constitution was perfect at any point in time, at all during parts one through four. And you're not going to hear me say that now, but it did make it a little bit more perfect. And I'm going to explain. See, while people are upset about there being slavery, at least at this time, they said in their words that uh, the number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. So they didn't mention black slaves. 
but they were counting them as 60% of a white person when calculating a state's representation in Congress. Why do you think that that is the case? Well, the Declaration of Independence stated that all men are created equal, and slavery was certainly a contentious issue because there were people then that wanted to eliminate slavery. But before the Constitution, if you were black, you had zero rights, 0% representation. After the Constitution, they moved towards three-fifths. And when Michael Pidnarik was on my show last year, he made a point of saying that that was the fatal blow for the Constitution that enabled us to finally end slavery and add the amendment. So that's an important part as well. Moving over to the checks and balances, the Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state. Chosen by the legislator thereof for six years and each senator shall have one vote. I want you to pay attention to that section, 1.3.1, because originally the senators, they were not voted on by you and I. The electorate did not get to say, oh, you know what? Greg Bolton's running for senator. I'd like to vote for him. Nope. Originally, your state legislators, they were the ones that were uh, nominating and voting in your two senators. And so that was part of the checks and balances that was supposed to give the states control over who was going to Washington based upon who they had at a local level. The problem is, in 1913, the bastard Woodrow Wilson's administration, just as I always call him, with the... uh, (laughs) (laughs) The Federal Reserve, well, that's also when we get the 17th Amendment. And the 17th Amendment says that the Senate of the United States should be composed of two senators from each state elected by the people thereof for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. Well, this hurts states' rights, and it moved the United States closer to being more of a democracy than a republic. You might find it interesting to know that Michael Bednarik, he states that the 17th Amendment was never properly ratified in 1913. Considering the circumstances he stated at the time, it seems perfectly reasonable, which when he talks about the 16th Amendment in the book that I hope that you will read, Good to be King, you'll understand that a little bit better. Now, he also talks about Congress in the amendment was to assemble at least once in every year. Now, this tells me that government back then was a limited government. There was no need to meet year-round the way our government Congress meets now. So, Michael kind of talks about this here. So, why is Congress in session so long? Or rather, why did the the Founding Fathers feel a necessity to write, you must get together once a year? What difference does it make? They're there all the time. Well, maybe... They didn't expect Congress to be there all year long. What is Congress supposed to do? Where is that listed? It's listed in Section 8. Section 8. Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises every April 15th for anything they want. Isn't that what your book says? I have a different copy. What does your book say? To lay and collect duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts, provide for the common defense, and general welfare. End of story. If they are collecting taxes for anything other than that, 
It's unconstitutional. Now, something that I point out is general welfare of the United States. What do you think they meant by the word general? Do you think they meant social security? Do you think that they meant that you need to provide everything for people? Or did they have an understanding that the community around with the individuals, that there was generosity and things could happen? Well, if you don't understand that Congress didn't need $87 billion bills to help other countries or $200 billion to go fight a war that isn't ours, uh, then I don't know what else to tell you. The general welfare of the United States was meant to be simplistic, which is why they didn't need to be in Congress more than once every year to make sure everything was going well. But that's not the way that Congress continued to run. Why? Because they are the purse. They are the money makers. And we see that in the next section, 8.5. Congress is to coin money, regulate the value thereof, end of foreign coin, and fix the standard of weights and measures. Hmm. Interesting there. This is the privilege, not the right of Congress. We gave that to them. This is their duties. We, the people, protect our rights, but we're going to allow you to do this on our behalf. You understand? They can borrow money. They can regulate commerce with foreign nations, establish a uniform rule of naturalization, coin money and regulate the value thereof, provide for the punishment of counterfeiting, establish post offices, uh, promote the progress of science, uh, constitute tribunals to define and punish pir piracies, declare war, raise and support armies to provide and maintain a navy, etc., etc. Eighteen things. Those are the things that Congress is given permission to do. Anything that Congress is doing that is not in that list is by definition unconstitutional. So where does Social Security come into play? Right? There's nothing in our Constitution about Social Security. Where does the concept of a Department of Education come in? Where is the constitutional authority that was ever granted to Congress in order to oversee that? Where is any of the departments, really? The Department of uh, <laughs> any health? I don't know. Like, this is ridiculous. But the majority of Americans, they don't ask these questions, which is why this show and doing these parts and the teachings of Michael Benarek are so very important. And then we have the Federal Reserve. They transferred power of regulating the value of money to the Federal Reserve. During this time of inflation in 2023, you heard, and at the end of 2022, oh, we're going to mess with the uh, interest rates in order to try to bring inflation down. We're going to uh, just print more money and try to flood a little bit more cash right now. Michael Benarek would point out that's like playing football, and right as you're about to score a touchdown, the referee going, nope, you got 10 more yards to go before you get a touchdown. It's unfair and it's unconstitutional. Congress had no authority. The president had no authority to give a name to the Federal Reserve Bank and give them the authority over the money. It is the Congress's job and responsibility. So at 1130 p.m. December 23rd, 1913, it was completely unconstitutional. Then it remains completely unconstitutional after and today, as you hear it, whatever day it is, it's still unconstitutional. <sighs> but it's checks and balances because 
people, they, they don't pay attention to any of this. Then there's the, the point of to provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States. You know, the Federal Reserve can counterfeit and they can coin all they want to do. <laughs> we can't print our own dollar bills. But why? Why can't you just go, you know what? If they can print it out of thin air, how come I can't print it out of thin air? Well, if I could, I'd be cheating the system because I didn't do the work to earn it, right? Well, the Federal Reserve is cheating the system as well, but they have a monopoly on it, which is why Ron Paul used to have a bumper sticker and I have it on my guitar case. Don't steal. The government hates competition. <laughs> so absolutely true. And how about the Congress having the ability to declare war grant letters of marking and repeat or appraisal and make rules concerning captures on land and water? Where the hell is our Congress in all of the wars that have been fought over the last 20 plus years? Where's Congress when we talk about proxy wars? Where's Congress when we talk about drone strikes? Barack Obama, one of the deadliest presidents in the history of our country outside of the scope of war, just taking people out left and right with drone bombings. And there's estimates that his drone bombings have killed hundreds of thousands, if not a million people. Where's Congress on that? I don't know. Apparently they were only supposed to convene once a year and they're spending their entire lives in Washington, D.C. And they're not looking out for what is supposed to be their constitutional oath. My Lord, we have a big problem here. The Congress is to support armies. They're supposed to appropriate the money to that use. And they're supposed to do that for a longer term than two years. <laughs> but right now we have debt problems. And we're arguing over how are we going to fund that? See, the framers of the Constitution, the founding fathers, as they call them, they did not feel that it was necessary to have a standing army. And I think this is really important to understand. The founding fathers, they were really concerned about a threat that armed soldiers would pose to civilian populations. What if the army turned on the people? And they have those concerns documented in the Declaration of Independence, which talks about the grievances against King George. And it talks about the complaints of, in times of peace, standing armies without consent of our legislatures were coming into our homes. They were taking control of our land. They were taking control of uh, power, military independent of our courts. They were taking away our ability to have a proper trial. And so by definition, what they were trying to do was tell Congress to help support and maintain the money to raise armies, you and I, which is the Second Amendment, to protect ourselves from soldiers, both foreign and domestic, which is the Third Amendment too. no soldier in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of owner, nor in a time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. Then we have that great word, militia, that people like to say, well, are you in a militia? Because if you're not a militia, you shouldn't have a Second Amendment right, because it states, well, militia was a part of the organized armed forces of a country liable to call only in an emergency, which guess what? The framer said that you and I are all part of a militia because we are United States citizens. We don't need to get together on a weekend and go shoot at targets. We are the freaking militia, people. Wake up. 
The Second Amendment applies because the framers understood that the militia was 300 million people in this country that at any point in time could be called up in an emergency and therefore they wanted them armed. That was the whole 1.815 calling forth the militia, calling forth the American public, organizing, arming, and disciplining them. That was an important part. But somehow we've we've turned that into, you know, well, you got to be part of the Army, the Marines, the Navy, in order to be able to have all of this. There's talks about how government's supposed to continue in here. There's talks about uh, making laws for what should be necessary and proper to carrying the execution of foregoing powers, which I believe has been abused at some times since then. And at this point, you know, we, we have a Congress that they're highly politicized with lobbyist money doing the work of uh, corporations and not the work of the people. They feel very much like they have rights because they were put into office. They don't understand their privileges. I don't think the majority of people serving the United States understand the Constitution. They are putting an oath, a document that they have no knowledge of or very basic knowledge of. I'd say that after listening to parts one through four of the show and wrapping up part one through five, you already know more than most of your locally elected officials as far as what is constitutional and what is not. Then we have the privilege also in Congress of writ of habeas corpus, which shall not be suspended unless there's a case of rebellion or invasion. The public safety may require it. Hmm. So when can the public safety require it? I think this is a major problem. And Michael Bednarik pointed this out as well as they use this as part of the Patriot Act to pass it through. But if you understand what's going on here, the checks and balances of Congress, we've gotten so far away from where we're supposed to be. Our government has gotten too big. So when you want to understand why I think the way that I think and I feel the way that I feel, well, it's simply because I understand that we were never intended to provide for everybody. People were supposed to provide for themselves. The individual was supposed to be responsible for the individual, not the community. The community was supposed to uplift an individual if they wanted to, but they were not to impose their will upon the individual, taking away their rights. Unfortunately, Congress has become a community that seems to know best what's for the people and what rights you should still have. That's not the way this country was set up. When we come back in the second half of the show, we're going to cover Article 2, which is the executive branch. That is the president and vice president. And in Article 3, we're going to talk about the judicial side and the Supreme Court, as well as all the other courts in the United States. Hope that you're enjoying today's show. Hope that you've enjoyed this series. One way you can honor this show is to go over to Michael Bednarik's website, Bednarik org and order the book good to be king the foundation of our constitutional freedom of which i am summarizing and creating these shows for to honor his life as we celebrate him he was born on august 1st died on august 11th and tomorrow on august 11th we will wrap up with part five 
All right, everybody, we're going to take a quick break here. Make sure you go and visit americaoutloud.news where you can check out all of my colleagues' work as well as help support the sponsors that help keep the lights on. They're at the network and providing all great content. You're listening to America Emboldened with Greg Bolden here on the America Out Loud Network. Welcome back, Bold Americans, the part four of Good to be King, the teachings of Michael Bednarik on the Constitution. We're talking about the checks and balances of government through Articles 1, 2, and 3. We just covered Article 1. Again, I highly recommend you go to bednarik.org, purchase this book. You'll get a much more detail than what I can summarize here, but this is really just a call to action here this week, doing these shows, honoring his life by bringing more awareness to his teachings to you, my listeners, our bold American audience here. Uh, But I, I really do believe strongly that if you pick up the book, you'll start understanding your world a little bit better in your political system and where you fit into it and what needs to change. So let's get into article number two, the executive branch. Article two deals with the executive. The executive is the president of the United States and his vice president and everybody else who is enforcing law down to your local police officer. Well, I'm glad we didn't defund them, right? They're part of the executive branch. We need police officers keeping law and order, and the president is supposed to uphold the legislative branch, the laws that Congress has brought over. But a lot of people don't really understand how a president is selected. A lot of people think they go to the ballot box, they cast their vote, and the majority rule wins. But that's not how it works. The way that our elections work is we have what's called an electoral college. And in the executive branch, we find this in section 2.1.2, that each state shall appoint in such manner as a legislative thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of uh, senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in Congress. So, for example, if you have 34 total members, then you would get 34 electors that can go and represent each of those uh, senators and Congress people. Now, that does not mean that senators and Congress people get a vote. They don't. The electors are chosen in a way that they are directed to vote according to the governing rules of their state. Some states have a winner-takes-all approach, which means if a majority of people vote for the Republican candidate, then all 34 delegates would have to vote as a Republican Uh, for the nomination for the presidency, just as other states do not have a winner-take-all. And so if you got an elector in that favored a candidate that did not get the popular vote, they could choose the vote for the other person. And so of those 34 votes, maybe only 30 votes go to the Republican and four votes go to the Democrat. Some people think that this is wrong, but this is actually to protect the minority of people from the majority. And it has worked extremely well. Uh, But there is people that don't like that. They want to have democracy, not a republic. But this is one of those clauses that helps you understand that. Now, if the people get to direct to vote for the president directly, what does that make the United States? A democracy. Do you want a democracy? No. So the founding fathers set up a system to basically say, 
these people are going to take, you know, the feel of the country or the feel of the state. Now, if you are an elector, you're supposed to say, okay, all of my group is Republican. And you're supposed to take that into account. And probably nine times out of ten, you're going to vote Republican because all the people that you represent are Republican. But what if it's 50-50? 50% Democratic, 50% Republican. Now who do you vote for? Your choice. Now, if you get 90% Republican, can you vote Democratic? Yes. yes. It's your choice. You're supposed to do what you think is the smart thing to do. So becoming a part of the Electoral College actually has a lot more power than you going to the ballot box, which is why some candidates for president, they try to get as many of their individuals to be members of the electoral college as they possibly can because they know that they can swing some more votes in favor of them. Although, like I said, there are majority states at this point in time as well. Why do we go out and cast our ballot? Does the popular vote mean anything? No. no. Years and years ago, you have this little car seat for kids, a little plastic steering wheel. So you can sit next to daddy and you can help drive. I help daddy. I help daddy. Okay? If you're going, you know, and turning right with your steering wheel, can the car go left? Yeah, because your steering wheel's not connected. <laughs> if voting for the president meant anything, it would have been illegal long ago. <laughs> Uh, I had to include that section. I love that imagery of people saying, Daddy, I help drive. I help drive. But no, just because you voted doesn't mean you help do anything. You're not part of the Electoral College, which is part of the Republic, which might be why some people get so disenfranchised with the fact that they want the democracy right now, but they don't understand why we have what we have and how it's going to protect them long term. Now, when we get into the uh, electors, they are going to meet and vote by ballot for the president and vice president, and that person will then inhabit the office once they get the right amount of votes. And so that goes in there. Enter on the execution of his office. He shall take the following oath or affirmation. Quote, I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Just like Lenin did. The oath of office is in the Constitution. They wrote it down. Why? It's a trust. It's a contract. And when you take that oath of office, you are swearing to defend and protect mm -hmm. the Constitution. If you don't, it's perjury and treason. Oh boy, perjury and treason. So why is it we don't have more people that have been uh, put in for perjury and treason for their actions? You know, that, that's a whole other conversation that I could do an entire show on if I didn't need to get over the article number uh, three before I wrapped up today for the show. But here's something you should know about uh, the power to uh, declare uh, an, an emergency. Back on March 9th of 1933, Franklin Roosevelt was using the Great Depression to declare a national emergency, which gave him a presumed authority to exercise extraordinary powers. 
Now, Abraham Lincoln, when he had a national emergency, he was never terminated. And the Internet gives you the ability to look this up yourself. You know, so go ahead and look for Senate Report 93-549. It's from the 93rd Congress Emergency Power Statutes that states... Provisions of federal law now in effect delegating to the executive extraordinary authority in time of national emergency report of the special committee on the termination of the national emergency United States Senate, November 19th, 1973, U.S. government printing office, which meant from March 9th, 1933, the United States entered a state of declared national emergency, and we had four presidents that proclaimed states of national emergency since then. In addition to that national emergency, there are also national emergencies proclaimed by President Truman, December uh, 16th, 1950, uh, when we were uh, having the Korean conflict. There was the states of national emergency declared by Nixon on March 23rd, 1970, and August 15th, 1971. This gives force to 470 provisions during that time of federal law. And they are statutes that gave the president extraordinary powers that would normally be exercised by Congress. And when you take all of those powers, that goes to my part of, they can seize your property. They can organize and control the means of production. They can seize commodities. They can assign military forces abroad, institute martial law, seize and control all transportation and communication, regulate the operation of private enterprise, restrict travel, and many, many more things. Now go back to a national emergency during the coronavirus. Is it starting to make sense now? See, back then you would have had a king, he'd write something down on paper, but the presidents figured out after Roosevelt, oh, I can just declare an emergency and I can do whatever I want to do. This is a loophole and it needs to be fixed. We need to go through Congress in order to make sure that we are operating properly in national emergencies. Remember, we grant the government the privileges, so we should be able to revoke those privileges but you got to have the courage to do so, as Michael would say. Which brings us to the third part of checks and balances, the judicial branch, right? If you look at the, the main part of we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect human union to establish justice, to establish justice. Now, we know from reading that we saw that the king and his military were not just whatsoever we weren't getting good trials so when we founded this country we wanted to make sure that we had a better legal system but it was still based off of a uh, european court system but we look to make it a little bit better and so judicial power of the united states was vested into one supreme court a court that from time to time would need to come together and state were the laws that were written constitutional was there authority within the Constitution to advise and to establish this as something that did not take away rights? Was it a right? Was it a privilege? Now, I don't understand why people still don't understand this right now, but maybe by doing this show today, uh, this will help. The judges shall hold their offices during good behavior. 
So basically what that meant was the judges hold their position until they die in office, or they could choose to retire, or you could remove them from office through impeachment. So they wanted to make sure the Supreme Court was protected from an elected office. They didn't want people that would all of a sudden you'd have judges running and campaigning to get support to reach the term. They wanted people based off of their merits, uh, and they also did not want people that felt like they were going to lose their job should they do something that wasn't popular for the majority, but was right in the minority. If it wasn't constitutional, they wanted to be able to uphold that. And so 3.2.1 says, the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this constitution to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction. So what that basically is saying is before court can proceed, they have to just make sure that they have jurisdiction over the case, that you're being tried in the right way. And so uh, the jurisdictions can differ between whether you're a common law, which a statutory law that's part of legislatures, the common law is the principles and rules of action that relates to the government and security of persons and property. Uh, we have common law in you know marriage, common law in the way that uh, see someone that might be murdered. Uh, you don't need to understand that that's wrong to know that there is a crime that's been committed. That's common law. It's the supreme law of the land. And then we have equity. Uh, that's where justice is uh, administered according to fairness, but in an equitable way formulated to the rules of common law. So it is the system of rules and principles, which this, like I said, it originated in England where we modeled this after Hamilton was one of the reasons for that. And it was an alternative to harsh rules of common law to make sure that there was a fair and equitable trial. The people would be ruled in a way that uh, you didn't have to worry about lawyers uh, twisting words and meaning different things that a judge could rule and say, well, we need to have fairness here. And then admiralty law and maritime law, they're basically synonymous. That just means that it's a system of law that relates to maritime commerce and navigation, to business transacted at sea or relating to the navigation of ships and shipping, to the seamen, to the transportation of persons or property by sea, and to marine affairs generally. So that's where we get the expression, the captain's word is law. That's admiralty law. And so the judicial system continues on with some insights here from Michael Bednark. Now, that's common law, admiralty, and due process, like I said, uh, you are, have a right to common law process. The only time they can move it down is if it, the distinction of property is not clearly defined. Marbury versus Madison is a Supreme Court decision. It is a very important Supreme Court decision. Good and bad. Okay? The good news is that the decision of Marbury versus Madison in 1803 says, certainly all those who have framed written constitutions contemplate them as forming the fundamental and paramount law of the nation. And consequently, the theory of every such government must be that an act of the legislature repugnant to the Constitution is void. If it's unconstitutional, it was a never a law to start with. 
That's the good news. The bad news is up above that. It says the critical importance of Marbury is the assumption of several powers by the Supreme Court. The assumption of powers. They assume that we can do this. Prior to Marbury versus Madison, who decided what is and is not constitutional? Well, the question never came up. It's not listed in Constitution. Article 3 is very short. It just says that there is a Supreme Court. It doesn't say what they can or cannot do. So the Supreme Court was able to give itself some powers. And so this is a little bit kind of crazy, but you're starting to see that the three branches of government were created to protect your rights, and all three have started violating your rights by allowing themselves to do what they want to do and not having checks and balances. But what I'd like to say is unchecked and unbalanced. That's where we're at. And so John Marshall said, well, we're the Supreme Court. We are going to decide what is or is not constitutional. Okay, everybody just kind of went along with them. They didn't have a better idea. So now, let's pretend, just for a minute, that the Supreme Court decides that the First Amendment does not give you a personal right to freedom of religion. You only have freedom of religion if you are Catholic, Protestant, or Jewish. Is that right? The Supreme Court said so. Does that make it the way things are? No! You have to remember, the Constitution says what the uh, Supreme Court is. The Supreme Court does not get to say what the Constitution is. That would be circular logic. This is a brilliant Michael Bednarik moment. I, I hope that you're paying attention to this because it's really important to a misunderstanding that so many people have about the Supreme Court and the way that they rule. It's pay attention. Who decides what is or is not constitutional? We the people who created this thing in the first place. If we decide the Supreme Court is out to lunch, it's up to us to correct it. And it doesn't get corrected by packing the court. That's not the way to do so. That's just like the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. It gets changed because we will demand better impeaching members of the court saying that, nope, we have a problem here. It's why I support ethics. It's why I support transparency from the Supreme Court, because as you can see, all three articles, all three branches have been compromised. And what are you going to do about it? Let me tell you something. I guarantee that you understand your rights privileges better at this point in time. I guarantee that you understand the flaws within the document because of the way that we've misinterpreted from the very beginning the fundamental purposes of our constitution. I think you understand that we are in a communist government at this point in time and leaning towards becoming communist. I think you understand the form of government and your sovereign rights. But now that you understand your rights, what are you going to do about it? You have the legislative branch, the executive branch, the judicial branch. 
How are you going to organize when everybody else seems asleep at the wheel, happy to be distracted with manufactured outrage all over social media? You have your amendment rights. You have so many other things I'd love to be able to cover this week that I'm not going to get to. But tomorrow on the show, I'm bringing on Chris Michaels, and we're going to talk about some of the things that Michael Bednarik stated that really help us understand how to protect ourselves from the wolves that try to misrepresent the Constitution. We're also going to talk a little bit about the First and Second Amendment on the show tomorrow, and that's where we will wrap up part number five. If you've enjoyed this content of going through Good to be King, summarizing the foundation of the constitutional freedom from Michael Bednarik, and uh, you want to help support my work, I could always use the support. You can buy me a coffee on buymeacoffee.com backslash bold America. So if you type in uh, buymeacoffee.com backslash bold America, you can donate to me a cup of coffee. And for that, I would be grateful for putting all this together. But most importantly, call the action. Go purchase Michael Benark's book. Go to his website, benark.org. Um, tomorrow will be the anniversary since he passed away on August 11th of last year. And so we're honoring him this week, just as we start off the honoring and celebration of his life last week. What better way to celebrate his life, but to bring it to life to even more people through this show. I hope that we've honored your time well, and I'll see you again tomorrow. You've been listening to America Emboldened with Greg Bolden here on the America Out Loud Network. Be bold, America. Thank you.